at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So glad you can be with us for this Bible line hour. If you're joining us for the first time here at 88.7 for the next hour, we take people's questions concerning the Bible, whether they're trying to understand a passage or trying to apply a biblical principle to some challenge in their life, family, ministry, whatever it might be. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP980. Uh, when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. You can also shoot us an email directly to the screen in front of us, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at WAGP. Dot net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. God bless you, Pastor. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, brother. Uh, what can we do uh, to help today? Yes, I have a two-part question. I want to ask you about the credibility of Matthew Henry commentary of the Bible. And um, I have a question. I was studying about spirits, and his commentary, he said that spirits is a result of the fallen angels meeting with humans and after the flood when the body when God killed off the, the earth with the flood, they experiment back to immortality, so that's why we had evil spirits of the day. Well, uh Matthew Henry Matthew Henry made that comment? On one of his commentaries. Oh his commentaries. You know, the Bible, yeah, right. sure. And I wanted to yeah, see yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I would agree with Matthew Henry on that, if that's indeed what he said. Uh, he, uh, he was a you know, 16th century pastor, and certainly God used him in a mighty way. He, he loved the Lord. Uh, he wrote a number of uh, commentaries that have been compiled in most formats into you know, one to three volumes, depending who publishes them. Uh, he, um, you know, there are some things that I, I would differ with him on. I, I think, you know, he's amillennial, which by that, I mean, he, he, he believes that the church has replaced the nation of Israel, that God had no future for the Jewish people. I think he was sadly mistaken. And so that influences the way he looks at a lot of different passages in the Bible. But that was a very common uh, belief in his day, just like in the early part of the 19th century, even at the start of the 20th century before uh, World War One and World War II happened, people thought that we would usher in the second coming of Christ here on earth. And, and so people have had mistaken understandings of how the end times will unfold. And a lot of that comes down to uh, the approach on how to interpret uh, Bible prophecy. And unfortunately, a number of men, and Matthew Henry was no exception, they used one principle for interpretation when it came to 
the majority of scripture, I say the majority, about one third of the scripture is prophetic. So I'm not talking about a small portion, but they used a different principle for interpretation when it came to uh, prophecy passages. And so that influenced a lot of the way they thought on certain subjects. But to answer your question directly in reference to angels, uh, no, the Bible is very clear that the angels rebelled against God. A third of the angels, the number was given in Revelation chapter 12. And uh, Satan, who um, in the Latin translation of the Bible, his, his name is Lucifere. And so in the King James translation, instead of translating the Hebrew, they translate the Latin and it comes out as Lucifer. And a lot of translations, it says son of the morning, which is what the Hebrew word means. Uh, but the King James translators were really not sure what that Hebrew word meant. And so they went to the Latin translation of the Bible, which had been in use for over a thousand years. And they just translated it Lucifere or Lucifer. In either case, this uh, holy angel, we think of Lucifer, you know, as uh, this evil, vicious being. Actually, when he was Lucifer, he was a wonderful angel of God and he had a very cherished uh, role. But he rebels against God and he's named the adversary Satan. Many names are given to him in the scripture. And he convinces a third of the angels to rebel with him. Now, it is true that there are some angels and uh, I'd have to go back and look at my Matthew Henry commentary. I don't use it that often because I'm more of an expository preacher, though I will give the guy credit. He did more expository preaching than a lot of men did in his day. Uh, I, so I'd have to go back and see exactly where he said this. But in Genesis, it is true that there was a group of fallen angels. Uh, Genesis 6 records it. And I have a whole sermon on it. If you go to the Genesis series, it might be helpful uh, to listen to the sermon on the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 6. But there in Genesis 6, we are told uh, of an event that took place. It says, uh, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Uh, so God is giving a warning that man has 120 years left and then that's it. That doesn't mean he's going to live 120 years each person, but he's talking about the time for the judgment to come. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them and they were mighty men who were of old men of renown, mighty men, the King James says giants. So he's helping us to understand the origin of this group of people known as Nephilim. Nephilim, some render it in English. Uh, and it's a result of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, going into the daughters of men. He doesn't say the, the sons of men came into the daughters of men. And some infer that and they say, well, these are the, you know, fallen, rebellious, you know, men who come out of Cain's loins having a relationship with women. And so they have an evil offspring uh, because they raise their children up in evil. Uh, but no, it's, it's speaking of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim have a relationship with the daughters of men. And the term is used in the old Testament, B'nai Elohim, sons of God to refer to angels, sometimes holy angels, sometimes evil angels, like in the book of Job, the sons of God, there it is again, B'nai Elohim, uh, they come into, you know, the throne room of God with Satan and Satan has this dialogue and, 
you know, we know all about Job. The only reason he follows you is because you bought him. Take away his blessings and we'll see what he's really made of. And, and But there's an example of where it's referring to angelic beings. But I don't really have to wonder on this one because we have New Testament commentary in both Second Peter and in the book of Jude. So let me just read some divine commentary that helps me to even understand what took place and what transpired. In the book of Jude, and by the way, Second Peter chapter 2, they're kind of parallel chapters. But Jude is specifically dedicated as a book to apostates, just like the book of Acts deals with the acts of the apostles. The book of Jude deals with the acts of the apostates. And an apostate is someone who initially uh, confessed truth, but then left it and fell from the state that God wanted him to have. They were not converted. We would describe an apostate today as someone who walks up to the edge of truth, but never steps into the kingdom, rejects that truth, and they turn away from the living God. And so Jude says in Jude verse five, there's only one chapter. So we'd say Jude five, some would say Jude one five, but there's only one chapter. So many times you'll see it written in books like Jude five, meaning not chapter five, but verse five, because there's just one chapter. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So he's talking about judgment that God brought on rebels. And of course, you can read about that in the Exodus. A mixed multitude left Egypt and um, 3,000 people were swallowed up in one day. And uh, the contrast in God's grace on the day of Pentecost is 3,000 people are saved on one day. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. So he's talking about some angels who didn't keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment of the great day. So when you think of um, angels, there's two big categories. There's holy angels. Uh, They are ministering spirits sent out to render service for those who will inherit salvation. The book of Hebrews, the first chapter tells me. And then there are fallen angels and fallen angels could be subdivided into a number of categories. But in the broadest sense, uh, you can think of fallen angels who wage war today against the believer. Uh, The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, we wage war not against flesh and blood, not against people. People aren't the real enemy. It's who's behind the people principalities and powers and evil forces that at work in in the heavenly realm and the invisible realm. So evil fallen angels also called demons in the Bible are waging war against God's people. And of course you see a picture of this in the book of Daniel, the 10th chapter, you see even fallen angels who are assigned to nations, uh, the Prince of Persia and so forth. And they are organized in rank, just like God's holy angels are. There's the archangel Michael, and there's the uh, archangel of evil who we'd call Satan so forth. And so they're kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's a group of angels who unlike those who wage war against us today that are illustrated in Daniel, the 10th chapter, they are in eternal bonds. They have no freedom to wage war just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
So he's warning, you know, the Christians that he's writing about these apostates that God is not ambivalent. He doesn't just fold his arms and say, well, it doesn't matter. It's not that bad. No, he's, he's going to judge them just like he judged the rebels who came out of Egypt and 3000 perished in a day, just as he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And just as he judged a group of angels, there is going to come a day when these men who revile the holy things of God are going to be judged as well. But he makes an analogy. He makes a comparison between what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did and what these angels did. Verse seven of Jude says, just as, just as what? Just like these angels abandoned their proper abode and they did something that was unnatural. Even so, the people who lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people in those twin cities did the same thing. They did something that was unnatural. They indulged in gross immorality. Men with men, women with women, and so forth. That's unnatural. That's not normal. That's unnatural, and it's against God's created order. God made them male and female. He, their names were Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, not Eve, Eve and Ethel. Uh, God made marriage between a man and a woman, and so homosexuality is an unnatural act, just like heterosexual sex outside of marriage or before marriage is unnatural. It's not by God's design. God has a design that we are to keep. And so there's a, there's an analogy. So the, these sons of God, the B'nai Elohim went into the daughters of men. Why did they do this? Why, why did they abandon their proper abode? You know, when angels appear in the Bible, they can appear as humans. The book of Hebrews reminds us that you can entertain an angel without even knowing it. He looks like a human, but in reality, he may be an angel and angels are among us sometimes more than we may realize. And again, they have a purpose and a plan. Well, these fallen angels came down as humans. And by the way, in every instance in the Bible, when an angel takes on human form, they always come as male and uh, these male angels took on a human body. Now some would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Angels can't have, can't procreate and have angel babies. Well, uh, this, the scripture says that we're like the angels in heaven and that angels don't marry or are given in marriage. Uh, angels don't cohabitate with angels and have little baby cherubs. Now that makes good art for the medieval period, but it's not biblical art. It's a misrepresentation of what God's word teaches. God made a fixed number of angels never to create any more. And some again are called elect angels or holy angels and some are fallen angels. But within this category of fallen angels, there's this one group that cannot wage war because they did something that was so wicked, God put them in eternal bonds. And second Peter two um, tells us the same thing. In fact, second Peter also links it with the days of Noah. So this time, this event happened during the days of Noah when Noah was alive and on the earth. And I think what Satan was trying to do was to corrupt humanity. God had promised a savior from the seed of the woman in Genesis 3:15, And so Satan, I think, wanted to corrupt the human race to prevent the savior of the world from coming. He's so evil, so dark, so wicked. So I, I, I can't remember Matthew Henry. I've read a lot of his commentaries. I don't remember him ever saying that, um, but uh, that angels were a result of this time period, fallen angels, fallen angels, the, the fall of the angels are described in two principal passages. 
Uh, I always remember 14 times 2 is 28. So you can read the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14. And you can read of the fall of Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28. And uh, that's when the fall took place when Satan rebelled. And he took the numbers given in the New Testament, a third of the angels with him. So that's an entirely distinct event from the Genesis 6 event because these fallen angels again are in eternal bonds kept for the day of judgment. So God is very, very clear on that. Anyway, that's a great question. I hope it helps. And let's go to the next question, Rick. All righty, 435 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And of course, uh, this is um, the national uh, right to life and... Um, uh, uh, sanctity of life week. So we've got a number of questions relating to that. Let me uh, interrupt before we go there. So yes. I, I know a lot of Christians are headed towards Washington DC this weekend for the annual March. And I commend those who are able to go. I'm not going this year. I've been before. I'm not going this year, but we are actually having a men's conference this weekend with the former vice president of promise keepers. And so that's this weekend. There was a spot that went on that was 10 years old that came on to start of the show. So don't get confused. I'll, I'll be preaching this weekend. But uh, on Friday and Saturday, we have a very special speaker, Dr. Paul Freed, who is the former vice president of former uh, of Promise Keepers. His his dad started uh, one of the greatest uh, radio ministries in the history of the church since we've had radio called Trans World Radio. And it's had a phenomenal impact, uh, especially during the 70s, 80s, and 90s via shortwave radio. Now we have other means in which to do it, though it still plays a very prominent role in some parts of the world. So it's a great ministry. But he's going to be speaking, and this is <laughs> open to churches across the low country. And a lot of pastors are coming, and they're bringing the men from the church. So, Rick, go ahead and play that spot. Hey, Melissa, I can't believe how good you look. What have you done? It's not me, Heather. It's Aaron. He's a different man. It's like he found his role and is running with it. What do you mean? Well, he went to this Mighty Men conference a few months ago. They talked about what it means to be a man, you know, as a husband, a father, and I don't know, just as a man in general. He said it was really fast paced with lots of video clips. They gave him a notebook with information he keeps referring back to, and he said they spent time affirming the guys there. I guess you'd say it really resonated with him. Since then, he wants to spend time building into the boys. At work, he's become really concerned about his role as a representative of Christ. And the best part is that we're connecting like never before. Wow, I wish Nathan had gone to the conference. Well, actually he can. There's another one this Friday evening and Saturday morning at Community Bible Church in Beaufort. All the details are online at lowcountrymen.com. All right, so we're excited about that conference. Dr. Paul Fried will be our speaker. It's going to be Friday evening, and this is for dads, and they can bring their sons if their sons are 12 and above. And uh, it will be a challenge to dads to mentor their sons, but it's also going to be a challenge to older men. You may be in your 60s and 70s. This conference is for you uh, because you play a very critical role in the life of the local assembly that you may be a part of. Uh, so we had lunch with about 30 pastors recently, and 
uh, you know, our, our goal is not to take uh, people who are in Bible believing churches out of them. And that's why we didn't invite a number of pastors because they don't even believe the Bible. But we we gathered together some Bible believing pastors. Others were invited, couldn't come uh, from our county. And uh, a lot of these pastors, uh, are, they're excited about this conference and they're bringing some of their men as well. So it's going to be a wonderful conference. And ladies, maybe you're listening. This might be something you'd want to encourage your husband to go to. Uh, again, you can go to community Bible church, all one word dot us, and you can register online. Uh, we don't make any money on the conference, but this is a national ministry that comes in. So there is a fee, but scholarship is available if someone is unable to uh, pay their way to come. So with that said, uh, this weekend is the national right to life March. They're hoping to have a million people there in DC uh, marching and again, standing up for life. Uh, we'll see who God brings, but uh, I think we have some questions that have come in in relation to that, so let's go there, Rick. All right. The first question um, is, is abortion murder? Our listener writes, a pastor of a Bible church in Corpus Christi, Texas, who's a student of R.B. Theme Jr., explained to me that although abortion is morally wrong, it is not biblically considered murder because the penalties in the Old Testament prescribed for causing a miscarriage were clearly less severe uh, and not the same as the penalty for manslaughter. How biblically certain is the argument that abortion is the same as murder? In Proverbs, God says not to add to his words or you'll be proved a liar. So is it sound for me to claim to others that the blood of aborted babies cries out to God from the ground, just as Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground when he was murdered by Cain? All right, a lot, lot of questions there. So uh, I think it would be helpful just to step back. Uh, some people will say, because you do not have a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not commit an abortion, that it is therefore permissible. And uh, unfortunately, that's really poor reasoning. Uh, you know, nuclear war is not mentioned or condemned in the Bible, but I hope you wouldn't argue that because of the silence of the Bible that we have a justification for nuclear war. So while you may not have a verse that says you shall not commit an abortion, God does forbid the taking of innocent life. Uh, number one, you have in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is found in two central passages in the Bible, in the book of Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, just a simple admonition, you shall not murder. So God's very, very clear that that says it all. You shall not murder. And so God says also in 23 of that same book, he says, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. So God doesn't like the innocent being killed. And I can't think of anyone more innocent in the womb than a little child. So the question really becomes is, is the child in the womb a blob of tissue or is it human life? If it's human life, then to take that life is murder. So a bigger question becomes, well, how do we know? Well, God has spoken. He hasn't stuttered. But sometimes you can reason with people logically. I remember when I was a campus pastor at Duke University, they would have a free speech platform. And it was my turn to speak that day. And it was on the issue of abortion. And a lot of college students were getting up and advocating that it was a woman's right, her reproductive rights to be able to have an abortion if she so chooses. And of course, we saw the day after our president, our new president was, <laughs> excuse me, um, sworn into office, uh, th tens of thousands of women marching in Washington, D.C. 
And boy, it was an eclectic group, you know, everything from uh, LGBT community to global warming to abortion rights to uh, save the whales, you know, save the whales, kill the babies basically uh, is the message of a lot of these women. And it's very, very sad. But the question becomes, is life in the womb real human life? And so on that free speech platform, I initially, I said, well, let's just think of it logically. I said, here we are in the uh, common area of Duke University. And I said, 200 yards to our left is Duke Hospital, great hospital, one of the finest hospitals in the, on the East Coast. It's, it's got a tremendous reputation. But I said, a woman could go into that hospital today, six months pregnant, and she is uh, going into premature labor and that hospital will do everything in its power to try to save that baby's life so that that baby can live and that mother can take home a healthy baby. I said another woman could go into that same hospital this morning, six months pregnant, to terminate her baby's life, to say, I don't want this baby. I want this baby dead. So logically, when does life begin? Is that not a problem for some of you listening today? Is it okay to uh, kill your baby one day before the baby's born? Well, the Supreme Court says it is in certain circumstances, the the, the life of the mother. And the life of the mother was never really defined. So some people define it as emotional health or the health of the mother, uh, the financial health of the mother. It's a very, very broad definition. But legally in America... You can kill your baby up until one day before it's born. It got very sloppy in the 80s and 90s because they did uh, saline solution abortions where they would inject a saline solution into the womb of the mother, which would, in their minds, hopefully kill the baby, and then she would deliver a dead baby. Big problem. Sometimes she would deliver a baby half dead, or sometimes she would deliver a baby who was struggling for life. And it became very uncomfortable, especially for some of the nurses. Some of the doctors said, just leave the baby alone, let the baby die. Other nurses in some cities grabbed the baby and would run the baby to the ICU unit and they would take care of the baby and preserve the baby. And it became such emotionally, it created such emotional trauma for some nurses. They, they just didn't know what to do. So we got more sophisticated in the way we murdered our, our young. And so we developed a, a system called partial birth abortion, where instead of delivering the baby head first, you deliver the baby feet first and you leave the delivery partial. You bring out everything but the baby's head and then you inject an instrument into the back of the skull and you suck the baby's brains out. And then you crush the skull with an instrument and put a dead baby on the table. Ah, You know, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton said it was a woman's right. You know, uh, those people have a very warped view of right and wrong. Listen, Donald Trump also said that that was right. Now, he says he's changed his view on it. And certainly to get into office and to have the evangelical community support, he had to have changed his view. I just hope he's changed his view in his heart. I really do. Um, But I knew where Hillary Clinton was going to go with this whole thing of abortion and Supreme Court justices. And this has a lot of uh, very immoral women in our country upset because they don't want to lose the right to an abortion. And it's a real tragedy. And what's really the scariest thing 
is the future of our nation. Forget Donald Trump and laws and Supreme Court justices that he may pull off under his term, and hopefully he'll choose good people. And the list of 21 names that a number of folks were involved in, including Ted Cruz, um, there were some really great names. And I hope those men will actually become the candidates, maybe some women on there too, uh, for the Supreme Court. But the scariest thing is, is this new generation that's growing up that is 18 to 25 years old that has really a rebellious spirit towards the living God with very little moral code and to be able to sustain the Judeo-Christian ethic in America is going to be impossible unless these people are one to Christ. And that's why we are reminded today as Christians that our hope is not in the White House, it's in the church house. And unless the people of God in America start sharing their faith again, which most Christians are not doing, most Christians are no longer presenting the gospel, then we're in big trouble. So let's get back to the basics here. Scripture very clearly affirms that the unborn are human persons. In Luke chapter one, uh, we have Elizabeth who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And we're told in Luke 1 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, meaning John, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she will say, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now the word there for baby is the Greek word brephos. And the reason I make this point is because the word that is used for baby of John the Baptist when he's in the womb is the same word that is used of the Lord Jesus, who is fully human as well as fully divine. But it's the same word that's used of him when he is born. This will be a sign for you. You will find a brephos, a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Uh, so God uses the same word, baby, brephos, to describe the baby in the womb and to describe the baby outside of the womb. Outside of the womb, they were bringing their babies to him. Why? That he might touch them, that he might bless them. Uh, in that great sermon in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen stands up and he recounts the history of Israel. And if you want to get a grasp on the Old Testament and just say, well, I want to understand kind of the high points, if nothing else, then study that sermon. And I have a very detailed sermon in my series on Acts from Acts 7, but study Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. And of course, at one point in the sermon, he mentions Pharaoh who took advantage of the Jewish people by, you know, mistreating, you know, the leaders in Israel and exposing their infants, their brephos. It's actually plural, brephoi, exposing the, exposing the babies. And again, same word inside the womb, outside the womb. Like newborn babes, Peter tells us we are to long for the pure milk of the word. Again, same word that choose. So one, it's, it's really well established that if we're talking about a different entity, if we're talking about, I don't even like to refer to a baby in a mother's womb as a fetus. I prefer to call that person a baby because that's the biblical terminology that God uses. A fetus tends to conjure up in some people's mind a hunk of tissue. A baby conjures up a real person. And again, when you read through the scriptures, you discover that God's involved even with the baby in the womb. Uh, Job will say, let the day perish on which I was born in the night in which a boy is conceived. Not the night in which a blob of tissue is conceived, but a boy. Uh, Psalm 51, five, King David says, behold, I was conceived in iniquity. 
In other words, he dates his fallen sinful nature all the way back to the point of conception. And so he is reminding us that we are born with a sin nature. Blobs of tissue are not, but people are. And again, God interacts with the unborn baby, even in the womb. Uh, That famous passage in Jeremiah chapter one, Jeremiah says that God called him to be a prophet from his mother's womb. I appointed you a prophet to the nations before you were born. Uh, Likewise, uh, King David writes in Psalm 22, um, he says, uh, upon you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Oh, really, David? Yes, because that's a person. And then in that great Psalm, Psalm 139, I often read it at funerals. It says, for you were formed for you, speaking of the Lord, have formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book they were all written the days that were ordained for me even before there was yet one. So God is involved in the creation of the child. He is weaving that child together in the mother's womb. And every baby is a unique creation of God. No two of us on the planet of 7.5 billion people even have the same fingerprint. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet in the 49th chapter says that he was called to be a prophet again from the womb. Uh, Likewise, the apostle Paul in the book of Galatians tells us that from my mother's womb, you set me apart. Again, God doesn't set apart pieces of tissue. He sets aside, he sets apart people. Now, with that said, again, if human life begins at the moment of conception, then to take a baby from the womb and do is to murder a baby. And again, you didn't really have to say that in the first century because it was just assumed. Children were acknowledged as a blessing of God. Uh, women felt a sense of shame if they were unable to have children. And again, the church fathers who are those who live immediately after the apostles, and they're usually put into two categories, the early church fathers and the late church fathers, they all speak against abortion. And one of the most ancient pieces of literature we have outside of the Bible is called the Didash. And the Didash was a first century uh, pastoral manual. So that if someone was a new pastor and he wanted to say, well, you know, how exactly, you know, should you do this in the church and da, 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 da. And, and it speaks against abortion as, as a murder. So there, there's no debate. One, what the scripture says and two, what early Christians thought. Now there is a text of scripture that um, liberal theologians love to use because they want to baptize their view in the Bible. And they say, here's a biblical justification for, for abortion. And they would say that the person in the womb is not a real baby. They would say these people I mentioned like Paul and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, God saw them as special because, you know, they were called for a specific task, but the rest, you know, they're, they're not really human. And so here's the text they use. And if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage yet no injury he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband, as the woman's husband may demand of him. He shall pay as the judge decides. But if there is any 
further injury. Further is not really in the Hebrew text, so it's in italics. If there's any injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, worn for wound, bruise for bruise. And so the argument is, is that if a miscarriage takes place and the child is lost, that the person who, uh, you know, brought about this tragedy, he's just fine. But if the mother dies in the scuffle, it's argued that the penalty is life for life, wound for wound, so on and so forth. Well, it, it's really a problem of translation. Uh, Rick, do you have some other Bibles in front of you this morning? I just have my new American standard here in my hand, but maybe you could pull up um, Exodus 21 and uh, pull up verse uh, 22 and I'll let you read it out of a couple of other different translations. And, I, and I'll call on you for just a second here, but let me make a couple of points here. Um, again, with time, sometimes translations need to be updated. And so today, when we think of the word miscarriage, uh, we think of a premature birth that results in a death. But there was a time in America where you could use the term miscarriage and not necessarily refer to a baby that has died, just a premature birth would be called a miscarriage. But now the word has a different connotation. So in the 1901 ASV, which is the American Standard Version, they translated it one way. And then in the 1950s, they came out with the new American Standard where the nuance of a miscarriage really still had a dual nuance. Today it has a singular nuance. And so I think it would be helpful at this point for the NASB to update their translation because the word has changed with time. But if you look at some of the other translations, like, um, do you have the ESV there, for instance? I do. Let's All right, pull up the ESV and tell me, what, uh, tell me how that reads, if you would. All right, if men quarrel and one strike a woman with child and she miscarry indeed, but live herself, he shall be answerable for so much damage as the woman's husband shall require. So and they use miscarried. Now go to the Net Bible. Do you have the Net Bible? I do. The Let New English translation, the Net Bible. Okay. And it says, if men fight and hit a pregnant woman and her child is born prematurely. Okay, prematurely. All right, go to, um, you have the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, see what that says. All right, when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely. Children are born prematurely. Go to the, um, go, see if you have the YLT. That would be the Young's Literal Translation. All righty, that would be, and when men strive and have smitten a pregnant woman and her children have come out. Her children have come out. So um, it, it's describing not necessarily bringing forth a dead baby, but children being born early or prematurely. And some of the translations bring that out better than others, but I think the word miscarriage really doesn't communicate the word yada in the verb yasa, which is used in the Hebrew text. The word yasa just means to, to go or to come out. And it's used over a thousand times in the Bible. And in virtually every instance that it's used, it's used of something coming out alive. There's one exception in Numbers 12, but there in Numbers 12, 12, if I remember the verse, um, it's not in reference to the verb yasa, um, meaning a dead baby by the verb itself, but the context draws it out that it's referring to a dead baby. So 
my point is, is that I don't think that there's any argument that people can make from this verse that number one, the baby is dead and, and therefore it's just because it's a baby from the womb and less of a person that man is only fine. But if the mother dies, well, then it's a life for life and so forth. Uh, no, I, I, that's, that's eisegesis. That's, that's reading into the text something that is not specifically brought forth. And so the context doesn't justify that assumption. I think the text seems to require a fine for a premature birth. And if the premature birth would result in death, then it would be a life for a life. If, uh, if the premature death, if there is just a premature birth, but the child's not dead, then the fine is still levied accordingly. Why a fine at all? Because, you know, the woman's pregnancy has been interrupted. He's violated a sacred home in which a baby is found. And there's trauma that comes upon the woman and so forth. So the argument, you got to let scripture interpret scripture. So when you have dozens and dozens of passages affirming that human life begins at the moment of conception, Therefore, if that's human life as God views it, then there must be an explanation. And even when you just look at the passage, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that the baby that comes out premature is dead. In fact, the, the word child is actually children. It's plural, which is interesting uh, because it, let's say the woman is carrying twins, which would be more likely. And maybe that's why the spirit of God had Moses use the term in the plural rather than the singular. Uh, the, uh, the possibility of a miscarriage would be even greater because it's more difficult to carry twins or triplets. than it is say sometimes not always, but singular baby. So my point is, is that uh, it's really to misrepresent God's word to build a biblical justification to read into a text something that is not explicitly said in light of the fact that you have all these other passages that clearly affirm that life begins at the moment of conception. All right. A fairly lengthy question there. So we're going to go ahead and break from that topic just to go with a quick uh, answer that I know you'd be able to answer this one. Uh, somebody asked, um, uh, who did Cain um, marry? Well, either uh, his sister uh, remember, we've got to remember from the book of Genesis that uh, Adam, and Eve, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, but those weren't the only children they have. When um, you read further into Genesis, you have some genealogies and it tells us how long Adam lived and so on and so forth. And it tells us that he had other sons and daughters. Uh, so the fact is, is that uh, he had other sons and daughters. And so he had to have married one of his sisters. Now you say that's pretty weird. Well, and maybe not as weird as we would think today, because remember this is pre-flood and people lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years length of time. The oldest man who ever lived, lived 969 years. And when you read the descendants of Adam here in Genesis chapter five, you know, this guy lived 600 years. This guy lived 609 years. This guy lived 525 years and so on and so forth. They live a long period of time, a long period. And it's not by, not by accident. So with that said, you know, he could have married, you know, someone that came from his dad and mom's loins that were hundreds of a few hundred years apart. And two, this was before God had instituted into um, his moral law restrictions on who you could marry. So there's not like another person created outside Adam and Eve that becomes a wife 
for uh, Cain. Uh, so, um, you know, it's not a mystery. That's just how it happened. And then, of course, as the human race began to multiply, God narrowed the scope of who you could marry and who you could not marry. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes the way that he deals with his people at different times in human history does change. All right. And you can listen to a much longer answer than that if you go to my series on Genesis and and, uh, listen to the message on Genesis 4. All right. On our uh, topic of sanctity of life, our next question uh, regards the significance of abortion to the prophetic calendar. At the Democratic National Convention, this listener writes, women stood on the platform of the Democratic candidate with full endorsement and boldly shouted out their abortions to the entire nation and the whole world. Uh, More recently, Hillary Clinton stood with Cecile Richards in support behind her on the nationally televised stage and proclaimed their unity and common cause in defiance and opposition of those who oppose oppose abortion. Cecile Richards, who had Uh, also previously founded an organization to oppose preachers and biblical preaching that teaches based on the Bible that women are not to lead or rule over men. She undertook this effort in reaction to Texas preachers uh, preventing the continued governorship of her mother, Texas Governor Ann Richards, and it's a continuation of LBJ's censorship of Texas preachers opposing his government corruption by instituting the 501c3 regulations prohibiting political speech in churches. Has there ever been a time in the history of the world where mothers stood in competition for the leadership of a powerful nation and proclaimed their willful extermination of their own babies in their wombs? I understand Israel practiced child sacrifice to Molech on hilltops openly. You mentioned that this past Sunday. But is this murder of born babies in the history of Israel, as described in the Old Testament, equivalent to divine consequence of judgment to the killing of unborn babies presently in America? Well, um, you know, throughout the history of man, there has been child sacrifice and it's been done in different ways and in different fashions. Certainly, you know, the Canaanites uh, would offer their children sometimes to Baal, the so-called fertility God, more often to Molech or Moloch. Uh, He's actually given a couple different names in the Bible. Uh, And God's very, very clear that in the book of Leviticus, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and cut him off from the people for by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. So God saw it as a wicked thing. Uh, to offer your children to some false God, because again, there's human life and God hates evil. And this is, by the way, part of the reason under the theocracy of Israel, we don't live in a theocracy. There's only been one theocracy in the history of man. We don't stone adulterers today. We don't uh, stone murderers today, but Israel did because they were a theocracy. Now there have been some people who had kind of a balled up view on who the Israel, who Israel is today. Uh, John Calvin, of course, was one of them. And he thought we were the new Israel. And because of that, he created a theocracy in a place called Geneva, Switzerland. And he wanted to take a lot of the old Testament laws that applied uniquely to Israel and not to new covenant believers in the church and apply them broadly. So there was uh, a a brother in Christ who 
had a difference with him, not on a primary issue, but what I would consider a secondary issue. Anyway, he wanted him burned at the stake. And he said, make sure there's plenty of green wood uh, so that he heard all that much more. He thought that you could, you know, punish apostasy and other things with death. Uh, I, I think he was wrong. And I think that was unique to Israel. But what God did through the people of Israel certainly expresses what God feels about certain kinds of sin and how evil it is in his sight. Now, look, if you've had an abortion, God can forgive you. He forgives all manner of sin. But the people that worshiped Molech were so evil. It was like a cancer that would enter into the people of Israel. And this is why when we studied Elijah last week, God said, you know, kill all 850 prophets of Baal. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, wipe them all out. Because God didn't want a single malignant, cancerous, evil cell left among the people of Israel. Because God absolutely disdains it. Now, we don't call it child sacrifice, but we're doing the same thing today. When a woman aborts her baby. It's a different God. We may not call his uh, name Molech. It's a different God, but it's nonetheless a false God. You know, the Bible reminds us that idolatry can take many expressions and forms. And Paul writes to the church of Colossus and tells us that sexual immorality is idolatry. And so some people worship sex. And when there's an inconvenient pregnancy that comes along, then we bring our bodies to some sophisticated abortion mill where they exterminate the baby. We are honoring and worshiping the God of sex, the God of convenience. And of course, when uh, birth control methods came in in the 1960s, uh, women thought, well, we can have sex with no consequence, as did men. I'm not just blaming women here. Men are as guilty as the women are. Many a man has convinced some woman to go and kill their little baby in the womb that has been conceived. But if life begins at the moment of conception, and that is the clear teaching of scripture, so then it really becomes an issue. Is the Bible true? Then it's an evil. And listen, Hillary Clinton is an evil, evil woman. I don't know how else to describe her. She's an evil, evil woman. To advocate in many women like her that this is a woman's right to kill the baby in the womb. You know, I, I got very upset with a pastor in Charleston a year or so ago, and I spent a half an hour on the phone with him because he was blocking a bill in our state that would protect little babies in the womb. This was a pastor. And I told him, I said, look, there are people in your church who have no idea that you are advocating this because when I called your secretary to, to, to get an appointment with you, a phone appointment, Oh, our pastor would never teach that. He'd never do that. But it was his committee that he chaired up there in Columbia that blocked that bill. He's no longer with us. But it's an evil. And Christians need to speak up. And people need to stand up for what is right. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, uh, another quick one here. In Matthew 15, 21 to 28, why did Jesus originally say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well, he is giving really an order of how things would unfold. 
So we, since for about 400 years, have referred to passages like Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, is the Great Commission. Uh, how is it great? Well, it's in deference to the smaller commission. The initial commission, when he sent the 70 out, he said, look, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Go just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus is still affirming this at that point. He's not denying that he didn't come for the Gentiles. Uh, the Jew was to be a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah the prophet said. But God wanted to affirm that he was faithful to his word, that he was going to bring the Messiah through the people of Israel. And so when Jesus initially begins his ministry, he approaches the Jewish people and he's reminding them of the promises that God had made to the Jewish people. But because of their unbelief, the kingdom that he had promised those people was postponed. And that's what Matthew 13 is all about. They commit an unforgivable sin in Matthew chapter 12. They ignored the witness of God the Father uh, given through the prophets. They ignored the witness of God the Spirit as they saw visibly in their face evidence of his work through the miraculous as done in the Son of God. And they ignored the testimony of God the Son. Jesus claimed to be God. The Father said he was God. And then the final testimony of the Spirit who was speaking to their hearts, they ignored him as well. And so they committed an unforgivable sin, what the scripture calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so the people formally, legitimately in their minds rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. And so Matthew 13 explains to Jewish Christians living in the first century, well, what is going to become of the kingdom in light of the fact that Israel has rejected her Messiah? And so he reminds them that God has not forsaken his promises, but he's delayed the kingdom promises. And so there will come a time a little bit later in the ministry of Jesus when there was this official rejection and it's sealed and it's done that Jesus will now give a greater commission where he will broaden it. Unlike earlier in Matthew's gospel in the 11th chapter, when you come to the 28th chapter, he will say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, not just the house of Israel, but all nations, all people, the ethnes of the world. And so that's what we are called to do today. And God hasn't forsaken Israel. He's not done with Israel. That's where we started today with Matthew Henry, who was a very godly man, but you know, a lot of his theology came out of Roman Catholicism as many men in that day. And he thought the church was the new Israel and had a somewhat distorted view of the Jewish people, as did Calvin and Luther and a number of other people. But God's not done with the Jewish people. He's actually orchestrating the events in Israel as I speak today to bring about the second coming of his son. He used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming of his son. And he is going to pull off the second coming of his son through the Jewish people. And it's not by accident that they are front and center almost every day. And even this talk about Jerusalem and all that's happening, we are speaking of biblical prophecy. We're speaking about the prophet Zechariah and the fight over the city of Jerusalem in the last days that God predicts. Anyway, we're out of time, but thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 